What hotel are you at? I'm trying to guess. It's a Marriott. Marriott? Yeah, it's a Marriott yeah, for sure. Hyatt. 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 Okay. Yeah. By the way, Mr. Like, Fancy. And he's wearing a collared shirt. <laughs> I know. He put clothes on for us, Glenn. He sold out. He sold out, man. He sold out. Big money got me. Big money got me. Hello, my friends. Thank you for joining us for the PebCAC podcast, a weekly information security show featuring some all-around good people. It is week 16 of 2023. I'm Chris Louie, and happy to be off this work with this week to spend the time with the kids. With me, I have Havoc the Mouthpiece, who's here to do his best Wes Watson impression. No, you have the hot dad here. The hot dad. Get it right. Good to be back. Excited for uh, this podcast, and I am broadcasting live from sunny windy chicago baby chicago chai town did you get a chicago dog yet no i haven't eaten anything worth substance other than a steak last night which was all right all right chicago hot dog and chicago deep dish pizza the two things you got to get before you leave i'm just hoping for our listeners chicago mugged For our listeners out there, Brian is wearing a collared shirt. (laughs) That he is. He dressed up for the podcast. He put clothes on, surprisingly. He did. Yeah. And for the listeners, Glenn has got a fictitious mustache on, but he looks amazing. So I think you should actually grow it out. (laughs) I should. If I could ever get it to grow out. I can't even get it to look like this after a year. So it's bad. Brian, get in the van, kids. (laughs) Who wants ice cream? Who wants candy? And we have my left hand this week who is enjoying the dry and warm weather up in Northern California. Hey, everybody. I, I'm starting to like not be able to count how many episodes we've done so far. It's just crazy that we are, we are this far. So, But happy to be back and uh, happy to be dry this week. Thank goodness. Oh, there's an episode on uh, the Arrested Development where uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but he goes into the doctor and they're like, is he going to be all right? And he, or, he, he, they're like, or is he okay? And the doctor comes back. He's like, he's going to be all right. They're like, oh, thank God. He's like, you guys are taking this better. He lost his left hand. He's all right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Dad joke of the week. No, I guess this week combined, we have decades of information security experience in here, not just to educate, but to entertain We've got at least one awesome story for this week. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, wait a minute. I just realized that you made fun of me. You said we have my left hand this week. <laughs> you just got that? <laughs> a little slow on the uptake there, Glenn. <laughs> it's the mustache that's slowing me down. Glenn, you're as sharp as a marble. Oh, rough. A shattered marble, maybe? Hooking up. Check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at Pebcac Podcast. Thank you to all our viewers and subscribers who consume the show that way. This week, we're going to revisit the Twitter files. If we have time, a mother who regrets giving her phone to her kid. We also had two other stories queued up, but looking at the show notes that Brian prepared, I don't think we're going to get through all of that. If we make it to that second story, I will be very surprised. For our first topic, we're going to revisit the Twitter files. In case you missed it, we discussed the Twitter files back on episode 94. 
If you have not listened to that one yet, we highly suggest you press pause and listen to that episode before proceeding with this episode, as it will make a ton more sense after you listen. We got positive feedback on the first time we covered the Twitter files, and we did get requests to do a follow episode, so here it is. We hope not to take up the entire episode with the Twitter files this week, and we have some lighthearted stories that will go along with it due to the heavy nature of this topic. Brian, over to you. Yeah, right on. So this will be a little bit more of a, a recap and just kind of like dive into it, like what we learned about it. So before I even start, huge kudos to the uh, the journalist Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, Lee Fang, and Michael Schellenberger for their work on all the Twitter files. And uh, to give you just a little bit of background, it started, you know, when, when Elon took over Twitter and, you know, for all the things that he is, he, he believes that he's a, a free speech absolutist. So he wrote these journalists in, I believe, at least three out of the four are all kind of left winged. And he's a, a right wing or at least one right winged uh, journalist that's on there. So it all started, uh, the, you know, the journalists all asked Twitter um, for searches and they would literally just get back vast amounts of information uh, that they had to sort through. They kind of started with the Hunter Biden laptop, January 6th and shadow banning, but they found out there was a lot more going on. And the information that they were kind of like going through was emails between executives, people that are in there, uh, along with Slack messages, which is this wild. So just remember, if you're, you're doing anything on company property, it's it's there forever, right? It's like, it's kind of like, you know, what happens in Vegas ends up on LinkedIn. So be careful. So the Twitter files, you know, kind of started off like this journalist looking into a very progressive, liberal type of company um, and trying to figure out, like, you know, why were they being biased in the censorship uh, in censorship? Uh, there's and it turns out there was a huge operation by the U.S. government officials, U.S. government contractors and a bunch of sketchy NGOs demanding that Twitter start censoring people. If you know anything about the First Amendment, that should be a giant red flag. And the part that was probably the scariest when they started diving into the Hunter Biden laptop was that they kept finding the FBI, CIA, NSA, um, and the Department of Justice asking Twitter to do things. Heck, they even had former FBI agents working for Twitter. So one of the days that they kind of honed in on was the 7th because it was kind of an important day <clears throat> where they, they kind of decided to deplatform uh, de President Trump at the time, even though he wasn't violating any of the rules. What they had seen was like this inside scoop of the dynamics of he wasn't breaking rules. And so them dynamically changing the rules so they can go through there and ban, uh, you know, deplatform him. Um, they just basically making up their own rules and shooting from the hip. So I'll pause for, for Chris and Glenn, see if there's any thoughts on, on what we had seen with that. One of the things that Jack Dorsey himself, the founder and CEO of Twitter, later on after he banned and deplatformed Trump off the platform, he, he actually said, I, I forgot it was congressional testimony or an interview, but he basically said he deeply regrets doing that because he thought that if he removed Trump from his platform, that he would still have Facebook, he would still have Snapchat, he would still have Tumblr, he would still have all these other places. So he didn't think that deplatforming him was that big of a deal. They just wanted to kick him off the platform. What he didn't know and didn't expect, even though everybody should have seen this coming, is the way Twitter goes, so does the world go. As the way Facebook goes, the whole world goes. So as soon as 
Twitter banned him, every other social media platform, even Shopify, like his Donald Trump store to sell you know, bumper stickers and mugs and stuff. Even Shopify, everybody deplatformed him at once, really citing Twitter as an example. Like, see, he, he broke the rules on Twitter, therefore he did something wrong, and therefore we're going to kick him off our platform too. So Jack Dorsey regretted that he had this domino effect of actually literally deplatforming a sitting U.S. president because that was not his intent at all. Do, do you What's, think he just said that, though? I mean, let's play devil's advocate. Is, is, is he saying that just to placate Congress and placate, so, um, you know, from a social aspect as opposed to just like knowing deep down inside he knew what he was doing as far as when he was doing that? Let's let's be real here, right? Well, I think if we jump forward a little bit, what we're really finding out is that the federal government's not just in Twitter, right? They're in Facebook and Snap, like you name it, right? They they have their reach goes extensive and vast, which is terrifying. And regardless of... Except TikTok. They don't have TikTok. <laughs> true, true. Allegedly. Uh, allegedly. allegedly. The, other government has t- the other government has TikTok. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I... I I would, to answer your question, Glenn, I would side with Jack Dorsey on this one. I think if it was anyone, it was Yoel Roth, who was their head of trust and safety. He was the one that really wanted to deplatform him. And I think Jack sort of got caught in the crossfire and he was the one that had to testify in front of Congress. I I think Jack didn't mean to deplatform a sitting president on every single public social media outlet. I think it was, I really think it was Yoel Roth behind it. You mean Yul Roth as in starting the deep platform? (laughs) What did you say, Glenn? You think the federal government? You you think the federal government was behind? Are you joking? Are you serious about that one? Uh, I'm 100 percent serious. Based on everything that we see in the Twitter files, that's the evidence that we can come to that conclusion. I'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, it's not the entire federal government. I would say there are some influential areas of the federal government, especially within the Department of Justice, which includes the FBI that had a vested interest in deplatforming as the sitting president. I wouldn't say the entire federal government, but there were a lot of agencies and influential individuals. Agreed. But it, it, yeah, bottom line, it's, it's, it's clear overreach. So, so one of the, the reporters, his name is Matt Taibbi. He actually had extensive experience on how the U S government did the whole like war on terror campaigns. So he he focused a lot on like how they did the disinformation campaigns and the propaganda campaigns. And it became very clear over time that the U.S. government took this disinformation and propaganda campaigns that they used to use abroad and they actually turned it against the U.S. American people. So as I kind of said before, the U.S. government isn't just in Twitter, right? They're in all companies like online, even Wikipedia and mainstream media. So it started back with 9-11. It was kind of the door that kind of opened, then the ISIS stuff, and then lastly, uh, you know, Facebook being targeted with the whole like Trump being elected in 2016, and there was Russian interference and in that they had somehow, somehow compromised Trump, and it turned out never to be true. Even Zuck, I believe, came online and testified in front of Congress like, hey, the day that we have doesn't suggest any of that to actually be true. So a lot of disinformation that's going on right there. And then if we fast forward to 2017, the Department of the Homeland Security, they declared that election infrastructure to be kind of quote unquote protected 
which means they can censor both social media and mainstream media. They start to, they start a foreign influence task force with the FBI to uh, basically to monitor what's online. So when we look at June, 2020, the FBI and the FITF, that's that foreign influence task force, they start playing a major role with social media, mainstream and mainstream media on how to deal with Russian disinformation, specifically about the Hunter Biden laptop. But the scary part was they started this campaign before it was even known about, right? So they started this months before the New York Post ran with a story. And if we take a, a step back all the way back in time to, to Vietnam, and one of the, some of the things that uh, people are standing on is like this, this notion of there's this thing called the Pentagon Papers. And that basically told reporters back in the day to not report that the U.S. was actually losing the war in Vietnam. So da uh, Daniel Eisenberg had actually stolen the papers and gave them to the Washington Post and the New York Times. They published the, uh, the, Penta they published the Pentagon Papers, which is basically leaked information, <clears throat> to tell the American public that we were actually losing the war. And they did this because they had the First Amendment in the back pocket. So if you fast forward to, you know, 2020, you got like Stanford and Aspen University putting out a report telling reporters and social media that they shouldn't report on quote unquote leaked information and in turn focus on the person who leaked it. So we look at the whole like Hunter Biden laptop story. That's that's disinformation. We don't actually look at it. And so instead, we're going to focus on the people that are reporting it and try to, dis uh, to discredit them. So the, the big thing here right, is that the U.S. government, they can't, nor should they be censoring anything on social media or even mainstream media, whether it's themselves or even through a third party that's funded by the government, like Stanford University. So when we originally looked into this, and I say we, when they, when they started first doing the Twitter files, they really thought this was like a, a thing about, you know, a private company pushing kind of like their... Uh, they're censoring, right? And come to find out that it was actually the federal government was doing the, the, the censoring, which is, you know, in my opinion, clear overreach. What do you guys think? So going back on the whole Hunter Biden laptop thing, that there, we have clear evidence. So it's, it's the year is 2023 now. So back in 2020, when it was election time, there was a, a, a sense that I think it was probably around the time you're talking about June 2020 or even August, September 2020. And the FBI put out this warning that says there's going to be some kind of Russian disinformation campaign coming in October to try to swing the election one way or another. There's nothing specific about it. They just threw out this blanket statement, basically preparing for a what they call a November surprise or an October surprise, whatever the, the term is about some kind of bombshell right before a really, really big election for, you know, in, in 2016, it was the Hillary Clinton emails that in the, you know, the second FBI investigation into her, that was the you know October surprise, November surprise for them. So they were preemptively going out there and telling all these media outlets, like planting the seeds that there's got to be some kind of Russian disinformation campaign right before the presidential election without any any specifics. And then sure enough, when the Hunter Biden laptop story comes out, the FBI says, oh, this is the big Russian disinformation campaign that we've been warning you about. Pay no attention to this. Ignore it. It's it's all meant to swing the election in, in favor of, of Donald Trump. But 
here in 2023. We know for a fact that the FBI had the laptop in their custody. They knew it was real, but they were still telling people that it, it was Russian disinformation. And this was parroted by the White House Press Secretary, Jen Paksky, you know, after, after Joe Biden was elected. So we know from Twitter Files Part 6 that the FBI had an uncomfortable and cozy relationship with Twitter and some of the other social media companies. And I think that is really... I wouldn't say it's eye-opening. It's confirming what we knew all along, that the U.S. government had an uncomfortable, cozy relationship with companies like Twitter and, and these other social media companies. You know, Brian, what I'm having a hard time with is the whole hierarchy of this whole thing, right? Because you would think government goes all the way up to the yeah. president of the United States, right? And you and you look at things like that. It's like, who is who is running the FBI and... Who's making these decisions? Because ultimately, even the FBI directors have to report up to the government to a it's government attorney general somewhere. Yeah, the, the attorney general. The attorney general. Yeah, part Department Perfect. of Justice. Yeah. So I mean, is this? And you've got to get a series of people that are in on this that agree with the motions that are being done, right? That's what you you know, three parts of government and whatnot, right? So this is like bigger but ultimately is it a group of people that are just making these decisions way below you know the white house uh, and is it is it you know you almost look at this as kind of a conspiracy in, in a way right it's just weird so this actually kind of lends into the the next topic right which is the the deep state like i've i've heard it for for years upon years and i thought it was all kind of just bs but the the reality is that the the based off what we saw in the Twitter files, the deep state is the CIA, the NSA, and the FBI, and probably other foreign entities, even possibly. And when we look at that, like we have to say, well, why on earth would they want to censor? And and actually, before I even say that, I think if we take a, a look back, and I, I'm not too sure where I heard this from, but like you you look back at anybody that's ever ran for president, they want to come in, they want to make change, and they all you know, I I, I walk look back at Clinton. Look at back at George Bush and Barack Obama. I was like, these are all people I would have voted for, right? And I, you know, I'm hearing their their opinions on stuff. But I think that once you become president, you sit down, and I think this deep state comes in. They're like, hey, listen here, B word. I don't think you understand how this actually works. You're you're now our puppet, right? And you're going to do as you're told, which becomes a very big problem once Trump enters in office. So if we buy into the fact that the deep state is a real thing. You would think that the deep state would have kind of our best interests, you know, from a bipartisan standpoint. But one of the things that Trump did that probably has caused him so many headaches was surround or was all wrapped around NATO, right? So uh, Trump's thing was, I'm pro-American and I want to do stuff, and I'm looking at how we spend our money, and I'm looking at who we protect, and I'm thinking, oh my God, we are spending crazy amounts of money. But you know what else in NATO is 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 forking up the dough. I'm going to pull out. And so when he started going around with that narrative, the deep state starts to freak out because they, they couldn't control him. Like he's to them, he was just a wild card, but to him, he's just kind of more of a nationalist. But, but I guess what I go back to is like, you know, CIA directors, NSA directors, FBI directors, all these directors, they're appointed by a sitting president, right? They may, you know, they, they, they get voted, they get, they get put in and they get put out with each, you know, at the at the whim of the president, right? And those that have long-standing tenures at, at those positions are usually because they're very bipartisan, right? Doesn't matter. They do a good job. They do their job. 
And I don't necessarily know, maybe for the FBI, um, you know, if any of these were replaced by by Trump at that time or before Trump, right? So, Well, he fired Comey. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, Comey was his selection too, though, right? So <laughs> that's what's weird. Yeah. Yeah, and going back to the... What what you said that you know these directors of, of intelligence, national intelligence directors, they all report up to some of they all roll up to the attorney general. But I mean, look no further than the FBI. Look up Peter Strzok. Look up Lisa Page. Look up Jim Clapper. See the, all the stuff that they did. See the text messages that they exchanged with each other. And and look me in the eye and tell me that the FBI is is nonpartisan. Like we had text messages from Peter Strzok saying we need an insurance policy in case Trump gets elected or in case Hillary loses because you know, Trump's gonna be really really mad at us and we need we need to do what it takes so so he doesn't get elected. And these are like really high ranking officials within the FBI saying that they're trying to not allow one candidate to get elected over the other. Then it ultimately rolled up to Comey and then Comey got replaced, you know, whether or not he was wrongfully terminated or not. It's not, not up to me. That was the decision our commander in chief made at the time, what he thought was best for our country. And and even look at like what's gone on with, with Biden. I think uh, if you take a lot of the stuff that he kind of wanted to promise on and deliver on, he's not doing it. And I think, you can tell that he's he's a puppet, right? And it kind of aligns with that that narrative that it's the deep state is really calling, you know, uh, steering the helm here, if anything. Well, the the fact that he can't stay up, you know, to to save his life or walk straight, yeah, he's a puppet, all right. So, uh, I think this might be turning a little too political, <laughs> so I'll swing it back. I'll swing it back the other way. So I'll, I'll say something unfair to Trump and. This is this is getting to Brian's point because when when Trump came into office, he's like, "I'm going to drain the swamp. I'm going to get rid of the deep state. You know, they're not coming after me. They're coming after you, and I'm the only one in the way." So he said all this stuff, and he also said stuff like, "I'm going to declassify the JFK files. I'm going to declassify the UFO files." So he didn't make a lot of promises on that. And then as soon as he gets into power, it's like, "Oh, wait, he can't declassify this stuff <laughs> and all the stuff he wanted to do." And I, I think Obama might have done the same thing. He says, "I'm going to." You know, I'm going to shut down Guantanamo. I'm going to uh, declassify all this the shady CIA stuff. And then as soon as he gets into office, like you said, Ryan, they have some kind of backroom chat with him and says, oh, maybe I shouldn't release this information after all. Yeah. It's bigger than they thought. And I, I would say that, <clears throat> you know, maybe on paper or on, on the first gander of looking at me, you probably think that I'm maybe more right-winged or anything. I do kind of believe I'm a little bit more of a centralist in, in my thinking on, on a lot of different things. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. And I'm, I wasn't trying to say anything about, you know, disparaging about Biden in my last comment. I'll be honest with you. I mean, uh, to be anti-Biden right now would be just anti-American. Like you're just praying for the downfall of our own country. So I think that seems, you know, anti, uh, anti-patriotic to, to look at. So... Uh, in the interest of time, let's let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> you know what's going on in Silicon Valley. So many of the the companies in Silicon Valley, right? They're they're really kind of libertarian. So we look at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, heck, even Jack Dorsey. Um, they all kind of rely on something called Section Two Hundred and Thirty back in nineteen ninety six that was actually passed in nineteen ninety six, and basically it's a huge liability protection over like anything kind of internet to allow these companies to exist. So I think Twitter, Google, Facebook. The problem with this is that the government at any point in time can revoke Section 230 from that given organization. You do that, then that social media company, you know, cease to exist, which is pretty uh, terrifying. Now, <clears throat> when I look at that, 
There's also kind of there's in at least in the last couple of years, been there's been three kind of big disinformation campaigns ran against the um, ran by the U.S. government and allies against the U.S. American people. So the first one is going to be around the the Russian interference in the election and that they somehow control Trump. And by the way, I believe these things to all be false, like they didn't actually happen. The Hunter Biden laptop not being a real thing, it really was. And I think the part that kind of blew my mind, and I think I may have heard it from you, Chris, is like when I first heard about it, it was like, oh, is this, you know, his son doing things that he shouldn't be doing, right? And then you come to find out that there's a lot more stuff actually in there, which was terrifying. We'll get to that in a little bit. And then the last one was around, it was a conspiracy theory that COVID could have ever originated from a lab. And I think even Time Magazine has basically come out and said the lab leak theory is true. So I think the the biggest concern is that really there's no public form of justice here. You can do or say whatever you want without repercussions. And who is that? I'm, I'm thinking it's more like the deep state, right? And to me, it's, it's really wild that the evidence that was in the laptop of Hunter Biden funneling money from China and Ukraine to help out his dad as a, at a VP at that point in time is, is, is ter- like it's, it's clear interference. And I think we should all know exactly what's going on. I don't think anyone's above the law, myself included. Go ahead, guys. So I'll, I'll take a step back. We explained this before on the podcast, but let me tell it in fast forward mode for anyone who hasn't listened to all 107 episodes before this one. So section 230 is part of was passed as part of a telecommunications act in 1996 and it basically said that the transport mechanism is not liable for what's said on there and this the intent originally was if i'm at&t or pacific bell at the time or CenturyLink, i'm carrying a signal and somebody plots a terrorist attack using my phone line well i only transported the bits over the line i didn't actually participate in this terrorist act or facilitate it so therefore the government says as a public utility you should not be liable for what people use on your telephone lines or your your internet platform. The problem becomes when somebody becomes a publisher. So the New York Times is a publisher. The Washington Post is a publisher. They choose what to edit and to publish. They are not subject to Section 230 protection. So if the New York Times uh, prints something that's just blatantly false, they can get sued and they can't there's no excuse for, for there's no protection for that the equivalent there would be like the paper manufacturer the people that make the paper that the newspaper is printed on is not liable for what's printed on that paper that's a, a similar analogy that you can use for section 230 and the fine line for social media is are social media companies a transport medium like a telephone company or are they a publisher because they get to edit and choose what you see are they more like the new york times or are they more like the old Pacific Bell. And that's the debate that's literally in front of the Supreme Court right now. And we should know in a few months where they land on that. Right. I really don't have anything to comment on this because it's just, this is mind boggling to me how far this thing is going and where it is. So. Yeah. I would just say that's a great analogy used there, Chris, about the, the paper. Versus the you know the newspaper and you know being printed on it, I like that. it's very easy and I can exp- I can use that to explain it to my children. So thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. And then I think it was Twitter files part thirteen, if I if I recall correctly, where there was an active campaign. So Scott Gottlieb, he's the former uh, 
I think he was the former head of the FDA. He's on the board for Pfizer now, and he had a vested interest in suppressing a story that so there was uh, there was some doctor out there. He pretty much said catching COVID and building natural immunity is the equivalent of getting a vaccine. So that you don't, if you caught it within the last X number of months, you don't need a vaccine. And of course, Pfizer wants to sell more vaccines. So they were trying to suppress the story that you don't need a vaccine if you've you've caught it. So there was an active campaign on social media to suppress that type of information, uh, whether it was uh, your catching it in your natural immunity is, is good enough, or that it originated in a lot, even like suggesting it and mentioning it maybe a year, even a year ago, I think would have just got you banned off a platform. And then sure enough that, you know, the current administration's de- was the Department of Energy, it was one of the departments came out and said, this is the most likely cause of COVID, it likely leaked from a Wuhan lab. See, this is a great example of like, <clears throat> what was I going to say? Let me double think this. That's a, that's a great example of like what would be seen as like vaccine hesitancy, right? Just an actual fact that's true that was being removed. And there was, there was actually a lot of pressure from the White House on vaccine hesitancy and, or vaccine or even vaccine side effects to remove posts. So it became very much like communist China, man. Like it was, it was really um, terrifying, but like, how, how do we even get to this point where we were allowed or the, you know, the government was allowed or the deep state was allowed to come in here and do that. So if we fast forward towards the tail end of the, the Twitter files, there's a name that keeps kind of popping up left, right, and center. And the, the name is Renee DeRista. And she's kind of all over the Twitter files, but she's in there in many, many kind of weird ways. So number one, she's very, very smart. Um, She's always the number two, but smarter than the person that she reports to. She received a computer science degree from uh, New York Stony Brook, which is historically a, you know, a recruitment ground for the NSA. She worked for some trading company and then eventually uh, starts up a couple of her own cybersecurity businesses. Uh, at some point in time, she becomes like hypercritical of anyone that's anti-vax, right? When she became an actual mother and she's allowed to be right. And this is like not these like pre-COVID stuff. And then out of nowhere, she just starts advising Obama um, specifically on counter ISIS disinformation strategy and global information center. So it becomes very suspicious. It's like it's like this quick career progression. And she ends up running the election integrity project. So she ran disinformation campaigns against the uh, Republican and Georgia candidate. Um, she eventually gets the job to promote the disinformation about Russia in the 2016 election. And the crazy part about this company, right, and that's ultimately funded by the U.S. government, is that they have over a billion posts that have been censored. And the way that they had done this was pretty ingenious. So they would hope uh, they would focus in on what they would call like super spreaders, like people with a very large following that might post something that would be, you know, don't get the vaccine. I have no idea. And they would take those posts, likes and shares, and then force social media platforms to censor the posts one way or the other. So they could flag these posts in, in one of three ways. They can remove it, which is obvious. They could reduce it, which is, I think Zuckerberg talked about that, that you could, you could post it, but we just didn't amplify it. Just wouldn't show up in things. But the last one, would be the you know or informed. So that's like when you when you post something that could be controversial. They would have like the uh, the informed banner at the bottom to find accurate information, which is counterintuitive to that statement of like you have like a an actual scientist 
that's coming through that has spent his, his or her entire life on, you know, viral um, diseases that are out there saying that, hey, listen, you don't need the vaccine if you already had COVID, right? And they would label that as being misinformation. So uh, I, the last part is that eventually the Election Integrity Project changes its name to the Vitality Project and then it, you know, basically wages war against vaccine hesitancy. So pause for you guys. I think we covered this. The first time we did the Twitter files, I think it was Twitter files part one, where mm -hmm. they actually have screenshots, literal screenshots of like Dan Bongino and Dr. Bhattacharya that said, these guys were on a list. They said, do not amplify, do not promote. Even if you did a search for them, you cannot find them because they did not want, they didn't remove them. You know, outright removing them would have just had the Streisand effect of having more attention on them, but not allowing that message to get out and making it very hard to find. Essentially, they were shadow banned for not following the the narrative. You know, Dr. Bhattacharya had the unconventional approach uh, or the non-conventional approach of saying lockdowns are bad. Now, in 2023, we know with we know without a doubt school lockdowns were a bad thing, and the uh, effects from it were far worse than you know just keeping schools open. But at the time, like, like you said, he had the credentials. He's a doctor from Stanford, but he was just not allowed to to post. And then people that, that were saying, "Yeah, we we definitely need to lock down schools," like they didn't get an information banner at the bottom. That as long as you followed the what was considered at the time the mainstream uh, media's narrative, you were mm -hmm. fine. That there was no in, informed banner at the bottom because that was a narrative that they were pushing. I, I feel like if, if I was that guy, right, like if I spent my entire life doing this stuff and this is my research and people are questioning it, I would just be so livid and upset. And then on top of that, like when you're starting to discredit people like that, then you have people that don't even know what the hell they're talking about impacting your life, right? Maybe it's the, the, the classes that you're teaching or maybe it just makes for really weird Thanksgiving, right? Like that just sucks for across the board. And I guess the, the long and short of all of that that I've learned in the Twitter files, I just want to know the truth. I don't want someone to monitor or curate that data. Just give me the information. And let me be, do my own educated guess on what the heck is actually going on. Well, this goes back to you can't handle the truth. Maybe that's this whole deep state is thinking that we can't handle it. So let's, uh, you know what, you're not, you're not wrong, right? I mean, maybe that's the reason why we don't know what, about JFK yeah. and UFO and all that other crazy stuff. So. <laughs> Yeah, would we spiral out of control because you know the, those were things that we're probably as a as a as a as a community not ready for, right? So, I, I I'm with you, Brian. I I prefer just give it to me and let me digest it. I'd rather know now than later that you know. And and again, like any like any news outlet, just give me the facts and let me come to my own conclusion. I don't need you to come to my conclusion for me, right? Absolutely, I think it's it's terrifying. And uh, my brother-in-law, man, he, he, he had views that I would say that are really kind of extreme three or four years ago. And one of the things that kind of stuck with me recently was like, you know, like he served in, I think, two tours in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. And he, he did the stuff, man. Like, I, like the fact that he can even operate as a human being right now, I think, you know, it would, it would leave me in nightmares in a wreck. But he's, he's built different, right? He just he just... He's able to 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 deal with what he was exposed with, and then he he looks at it now. He's like, man, he's like, I don't know why we were over there. It was a lost cause. A lot of good people died, 
it breaks my heart. He's like, what you have to remember is that history is written by the winner. It doesn't necessarily mean that the what's written is actually true. And when you think about that, like that's a sickening. Yeah, I mean, if you go through and you you look, I mean, you have to go back and look through the history books, right? I think they're starting to erase the fact that it wasn't Christopher Columbus that uh, that that found America. It was Leif Erikson, and it was not only that, probably the, the the Indians that were already here at the time. So, like, we really didn't find ourselves. We just, you know, we didn't need Christopher Columbus to define that. And I think all that is starting to get rewritten as it stands right now. But who's writing these things? Exactly. So, uh, to, to button up, I guess this this section of the of uh, the podcast. So, two last things I'll leave you guys with. So, number one, you know, Elon really wants something to be released called the uh, the Fauci files, and uh, according to the journalists here, they haven't even begun sifting through that information. Um, but one of the, I think it was Michael Schellenberger, was quoted. He said that basically. Michael Schellenberger said, if you read the book, The Real Anthony Fauci, it sounds a lot like what's going on with COVID-19, but without investigative journalism, social media, et cetera. It's very eerie. And uh, the one last thing I'll leave you guys with on this topic is last Monday, uh, I have no idea, the 9th, I posted on LinkedIn saying that we would be covering the Twitter files with a little icon. I tagged both Chris and Glenn in this LinkedIn post. Immediately, the post does not show up on my feed. I've had 103 interactions with this post. Keep in mind, I usually get between two and 10,000 interactions with, with a post on LinkedIn. I have a you know, fairly decent following. And this goes to show you, and I did put hashtag the Twitter file. So it, I, I walked right into that. I got, I got censored myself. I even tagged both Chris and Glenn who were never notified in their LinkedIn feed as well. So is this just Twitter or is it everything? Uh, guess what? It's it's everything. It's everywhere. Someone's doing something to censor us, and it's it's total nonsense. Yeah, the last time we had that few user interactions, we got shadow banned when we talked about flat Earth theory. <laughs> exactly. That's, LinkedIn doesn't like Twitter files. <laughs> they also don't like flat Earthers. What's wrong with flat Earthers? What's, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean that that is interesting. So I mean, even after the Twitter files came out, just showing you know the hypocrisy of of social media companies of of choosing what to promote and choosing what to censor. Like it, it's they're censoring the story about social media censoring things. So it's 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 kind of this roundabout logic here. It's just very amusing to me. I I would say. What's scary and like so my mom. You know, she's like 70 plus years old. She's, you know, done like I, I kind of opened the door to her about the Twitter files. And so she's done her research. And now it's like her her life's goal to let everyone know about this in her community. So she's got, you know, these 70 plus 88 year old people listening to the podcast because you the, the scariest part about the Twitter files is that you're not like this, in my opinion, and I don't know if you guys agree. It should be on every news channel. It should be in every newspaper, and it should be all over social media. But you don't see it. And I think we, maybe myself in particular, I think I'm taking a, a very large gamble by even talking about this so candidly. I don't, I don't know that's necessarily going to be a good thing for me, but we'll, hopefully, I'm wrong and nothing happens other than my previous post being shadow banned, and that's it. 
If you get someone from the IRS showing up at your doorstop tomorrow, you'll know what happened. Exactly. <laughs> that happened to Matt Taibbi. Glenn's, yeah, exactly. So Glenn's making a joke, but that actually happened to yeah, Matt, Matt Taibbi. He, he just randomly got a knock on the door from the IRS saying, we need to we need to check your financials. And he got a severe audit from the IRS unexpectedly. Like when he... he we talked about it on the last episode, but you know, Matt, he's he's a far left reporter for a far left publication. He wrote for he used to write for Rolling Stone, now he writes his own Substack. No, not once when he wrote for, for those publications to get any kind of audit, but now that he's he's become the face of blowing the lid off this whole Twitter file things, he's gotten a very high profile. And you could argue that, you know, the increased attention on him, the increased traffic to a subsect, maybe he's making more money now, so maybe he's under higher chance of audit, but like what are the odds? that he'd be targeted for a severe IRS audit after he begins reporting on the Twitter files. Call it conspiracy theory, call it whatever you want. It just seems odd. It's a coincidence, guys. Come on now. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the, the amount of times where some type of statement was you were branded a conspiracy theorist, like the whole Wuhan lab thing, the whole Hunter Biden laptop thing, and any of the, the COVID stuff, the COVID immunity stuff was branded as a conspiracy theory three years ago. Well, Turns out in 2023, those things were actually correct. It's insane, and uh, you know the the COVID and the and the the vaccines and all that good stuff. Like it's it's wild, you know. Never in a in a point in time have you ever maybe taken a prescription and been silenced on like maybe a side effect. I mean, like every ad for every pill that's out there in the middle of the night right like it's got the the list of side effects on there but for some reason this time it was was muted which is just wild that's all i had guys all I'm right done venting. hopefully we're good and just as i predicted we ran out of time for any other topics so we continue to get great comments about our dad joke of the week dad joke of the week this week glenn is up all right Let's uh, make sure I, I, I do this correctly, because I've got a doozy. So This is a good one. I'm excited. Um, here we go. Go to the doctor. You know, as you know, I went to get my hand surgery done. Uh, and it says, uh, the doctor says, unfortunately, we had to amputate two fingers on your right hand. And I say, oh, no. Will I be able to write with it? Possibly, but I wouldn't count on it. Bravo. Bravo. Good one. All right. To wrap things up, the Twitter files reveal more about our democracy than we would like. That's all we have for this week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I promise next week we'll have some lighthearted stories to make up for this episode's very deep content. You can find us all on LinkedIn. Links will be in the description. Follow us on Instagram at Pepcac Podcast. Thank you to all our listeners and subscribers who rated us five stars in the iTunes store and Spotify and left us a review. We appreciate you all spreading the word to help grow the show. The best way to find us is to search for the Pepcac Podcast on your favorite podcast listening app. For our co-host Brian Deach and Glenn Medina, I'm Chris Louie. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next weekend. As always, have a nice day. Bye, Felicia. Bye, Felicia. Jinx, let me a beer. Have a nice day.